Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rage Girls. I'm Kaylee Higgins, and I'm here with my co-host, Kelly Proud. We wanted to give folks an introduction to who we are, what this podcast is, some of the critiques that are going to come up, and some of our own experiences in relation to them. Kelly and I met in 2020 after I started an Instagram account called Evidence Against Space Jesus, who was a popular DJ at the time. That page led to many other similar pages, including evidence against bass nectar and started a domino effect of allegations of sexual abuse in electronic dance music, plus a whole bunch of lawsuits. Electronic dance music is more commonly known as EDM, and you'll also hear us refer to it as the rave scene. Kelly and I bonded because we both worked in EDM for a long time, and we both had the same devastating experience of being victim-blamed, smeared, and ostracized by our local EDM communities after we spoke out about sexual abuse. This is part one of our first episode. This is Kelly's story. My name's Kelly Proud. It's a real name. I grew up in Boring, Oregon. It's a real place. <laughs> boring Oregon. It really sounds like it's out of a novel. Definitely main character energy, but not the kind of story that you'd like want to be in. Um, so we grew up, me and my family, there were four girls and none of us went to school. Um, we were intentionally kept out of school growing up because my parents were early anti-vaxxers that were also in a small and still existing cult called the Foundation for Human Understanding. So instead of going to school, my family discovered that we could all sing at a really early age. And we were um, learning songs and singing them at the Portland Saturday Market, which I believe is still a thing. Boring is about 40 minutes outside of Portland, and we travel there to make money, me and my family, by singing on the streets and earning tips. Um, we decided to move to Reno when I was about nine uh, for more opportunities in entertainment. So we came down here, and now I live in Reno, Nevada. Social services got called on us pretty quickly uh, for not being in school by our neighbors. And we were sent to take the Iowa test, I think it's still called, where you're, you're graded on what level you're at as a kid. And um, since I had never been in school and had only ever really learned like how to read song lyrics, I didn't know a lot of the symbols. So I tested really low and they tried to hold me back. Uh, luckily, my parents fought it and I went into school like around age 10 and I started kind of existing in the school system, but it was like way too late for me. Like I already had no respect for authority. Um, I certainly didn't think that adults were like all that different from me um, because up until this point in my life, I had just been given money by adults for singing at them. So they were like, hey, can you do this paper better? or else I won't give you a good grade. And I was like, this is not an exchange that I'm interested in whatsoever. <laughs> so I, I had a really hard time. And I remember actually having my very first panic attack in fourth grade. And it was for that reason that like, I couldn't get like my vocabulary words, like the definitions weren't matching up for some reason. Like she said they were too expansive. So I was trying to be a poet. And, uh, and I had a panic attack in class when I was like 10 years old because I didn't understand how to be good at this thing. I, and I was only used to being good at something. And there was no term for it then. There was no word for panic attack in my house back in, what year was this, 1995? 
Nobody was talking in an anti-vax world that I lived in. Nobody was talking about mental illness at all. Um, but I made it through school sort of, and continued to sing throughout that and throughout my life and, um, continued also to balk at authority and challenge pretty much any popular idea that I was confronted with. <laughs> when I was 15, my sister, older sister kind of discovered the world of psychedelics, which for us was really healing. You know, we had a lot of, a lot of, uh, past trauma from the way that we grew up and just like the lack of emotional connection or stability. You know, we moved around and we were singing and we weren't in school and we didn't really understand how to connect with other people our age. We didn't understand how to connect with the world. And, um, my sister took me to a rave and everything felt really connecty, you know? And aside from that being an artist, you know, you're drawn to other artists and that environment really cultivated art and creativity at the time. You know, this was like when I started going to raise with my sister, I was 15. So it was around the year 2000 when things were really fun. Um, she took me to together as one and we saw BT and I think it was Armand Van Helden that did the countdown to midnight ridiculous. Um, and it really kind of connected us in a way being in that world together. We found a crew of people that surrounded me that made me feel safe. Her friends were adamant about taking care of me because I was the youngest person there. They made sure that nobody came near me without, <laughs> without my sister kind of vetting them sort of. And once I got old enough to do that myself, they let me do it myself. But there was a very clear structure of who I could go to if something went wrong. Like that never, ever fell through for me. And I was really lucky to have that. I kind of got out of wanting to be in that environment. Came back to bass music when it started making its rounds in my city uh, around 2010 and 2011, when West Coast bass music really sort of kind of blew up um, in Northern California and Northern Nevada and Tahoe. And, and, you know, as we've seen it kind of branch out from there. But um, there was a specific club called Work, spelled W-U-R-K, and anybody from Reno that cares about bass music knows that club and they were the only place that featured it. And it was really special because I felt safe there. Security, bartenders, everybody took care of each other. It was small enough for there to be kind of an unnatural community regulation, you know, or yeah. collective caretaking. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that the change that we've seen happen is that like, that was a passion project of Ryan's. Ryan, your partner, also known as RV, you guys will hear us refer to him both ways. It was a passion project that developed and thus, you know, it permeated and the people that came to that place every week or weekend or, you know, every other night like I did, um, we helped protect it because of that passion. You know, it was a passion we all felt because none of us had a different place that we could do this in. We all saw this as like our grounds for community in this one particular field and scene. There was nothing else like it. And that sort of, it wasn't exclusive. It was open to everybody, but we, we all helped. And it was that collective environmental security that made it last and made it fun. And that, that went out to all the festivals, the bounce festival and various other things that happened around the area at that time. And what changed is insomniac entertainment. What changed is financial dynamics that decided, oh, look at this small group of people in each area of this region that we could be capitalizing upon with a bigger event in Las Vegas, QEDC. Uh, so I, and I remember the very first time I saw a video of EDC and the guests trying to break down the doors and like stampede one another. And that was around 2012 
right when it was really starting to like get really huge. And I remember like looking around at my little mellow, small scene in Reno and being like, I want nothing to do with this. This looks awful. This is not what I signed up for. This isn't what I came for. Like people actually fighting over each other to get into the fairgrounds. It didn't make any sense to me. So now work had turned into one up, which we still have. Or maybe, I don't know. And then the Bluebird. Instead of having one nightclub that played bass music, we had two nightclubs that played bass music. But the Bluebird was curated because Ryan had relationships with people all over the West Coast. He had relationships with artists. He had, you know, people that he kind of helped learn how to DJ or put on one time that are now touring. And so he had access to the personnel side of things. And so he got all the good bookings. He put together some really incredible lineups and um, the Bluebird kind of took off for a couple of years. And then in 2018, 2019, when it started to really develop and be awesome, people got power hungry. The first time I worked there, I was a bartender. And then when I led it uh, during the pandemic for the eight months that we were open, running it together, he was managing the rest of the club and I was managing the bar. And I stepped in when I started seeing not just people locally, but even touring acts coming in and abusing women and abusing their power. And then I became a victim of just that because I spoke out against it. And I, I called I, without even thinking about it, without worrying about what would happen to me. I was very, very vocal when I saw any kind of injustice or mistreatment. It didn't even occur to me that somebody wouldn't want me to do that. But they didn't. They didn't want me to do that. So we had what I like to call a hostile takeover. And we got Lannistered out by one of the co-owners and his little crew. And within a year, we were called back to run it again and got to for about eight months of the pandemic. And then again, another co-founder got real sexist and didn't like that I spoke for myself in a really <laughs> normal way. <laughs> I did things like ask for pay. He didn't like that. Um, and uh, I just advocated for myself and it was too much. And so they kicked me out of the club entirely. And so my partner left the business. And people called me hypervigilant. People told me that I was trauma responding and that I was... Um, that I was uh, anticipating drama. And they're right. I was. I was hypervigilant. I was anticipating drama because some of those people could have fucking died. On March 17th, Reno shut down, okay, in 2020. And on March 30th, these fucking kids <laughs> and the other guy that was running the Bluebird before we came back in snuck in and took every single electronic device that was inside of the building, everything, registers, um, uh, production equipment, computers, like we're talking like stripped, just stripped the place of everything that could possibly make it a working business. Because one of the people involved, because the main guy that, that orchestrated it was also on the lease, it would have been a civil lawsuit. So instead, what we did was got together who we still had in our community who were all awesome people. Um, part of a little group called Code Collective. A lot of heart in Code Collective. Still going because they're awesome humans. Um, got together and we found a new sound system. We found new equipment. I mean, it worked. We did it. We raised money by doing lives. 
We, we put together like a little production area. We managed to still keep the CDJs, even though one of the fucking lackeys that robbed the place tried to trade a key to the new lock for the CDJ. And we were like, no. Do you want to know? Do you want to know who that person was? Toe for the sound guy. Yeah. Oh my God. Toe for the sound guy. If you're, if you're listening to this, I'd like you to know that your performative bullshit, I see right fucking through you, kid. And so does everybody else. Topher the sound guy. <laughs> Coming for all you Topher the sound guys out there. You know, you little fucking social climbers. They're living their dream after, you know, gutting our venue, even though we fully came back from it anyway. Um, they succeeded. And people in our town that know the story watched them succeed by fucking us over. And so the other harm that is done is by watching a, a whistleblower or a survivor speak out and then be completely ousted. We are made examples of to the rest of the community who might do the same fucking thing. And they're like, Oh shit. Well, I don't want to lose my job or lose all of my friends or be talked about like shitty because I came out and said something against the main douchebag in charge. So we bonded over evidence against space Jesus really blowing up. And then that leading to evidence against base nectar and Diplo and Nako and Billy Kenny and just it became too much for me to even keep track of because it was just so many it started out with a lot of DJs and then it spread beyond and then even beyond the music industry and uh that it was amazing but um you know really traumatic when all these people started speaking out we started to realize we're seeing this pattern everywhere where uh the whistleblowers are being ostracized and Uh you know victims are being smeared and blamed and it's like the quote-unquote community it's kind of cult-like behavior honestly you know it's like evolved into something that is uh it's not a healthy form of community if that's how you treat people who bring issues to light and people who have been harmed i think the most beautiful thing to come out of the whole domino effect that that page started was a lot of people spoke out about species that led to base sector all these other djs but it, it was really the strength of the victim's and whistleblowers connecting with each other. It formed the safety in numbers, a real community, um, which was, you know, so refreshing after we've all felt so mistreated by what we thought was like our chosen family and community for so long, the rave scene. The reason why we started this podcast too was when the lawsuits were done, I decided to change that into Music Industry Watchdog so that it could keep serving the same purpose of bringing these issues to light, um, but not just have it focus on this one individual, have it be right. focused on the whole industry. And then we started doing lives on that page as issues would come up. We would have these phone conversations and constantly be like, we should be recording this. <laughs> We're like, we need to share this stuff. That was the idea behind the lives. Like we should just do these conversations live and kind of let people participate because we, there is this whole community through the page. We want to share that. And, and, and because we saw the power in building that community support with the victims and whistleblowers and, and allies, everybody who really came together to expose all these predators in the industry. So we started doing the lives and it was well received and figured like the initial intention was to give people a platform to speak out, you know, when they are victims or whistleblowers about individual predators. And that is important, but we also know it's, it's so much bigger than just the individual predators. It's a whole culture. That's why we call it rape culture and kind of explore this question of like, why is it so particularly bad in the music industry in EDM, electronic dance music, or the rave culture. And it feels important for us to take it beyond saying like, you know, look at these individuals 
because it's not, it's a cultural problem. It's a systemic problem. It's not just bad apples. Yeah. I think it's important to recognize that you and I connect on that as well as uh, being staunch abolitionists when it comes down to it. Uh, You can't really unravel and extrapolate all of the causes and issues within rape culture without also harnessing abolitionist ideology. There's no way. There, there's no way. And, and, and to avoid or ignore that or to think that it's extreme is to deny the genocidal maniacs that constructed our nation. Like, I don't care if it's America's birthday. Absolutely. Andrew Jackson murdered like 250,000 people so he could be on a 20. Like, it's not that chill, you guys, that we're trading <laughs> on labor for a document with a picture of a genocidal maniac on it. Like, we have problems here. Big ones. So I think that a piece of abolitionism is talking about upending rape culture and, you know, treating women like they're whole entire people, not just objects and baby makers. And that is unfortunately what it comes down to, um, is, is that rape culture stems from, from an ideology and a concept and, uh, a, a systemic indoctrination of, of men who believe that they are entitled to a woman, a woman's body, a woman's intellect, a woman's value, and to do with whatever they want. That's what happened in the bass music world. That's what's happening in our country. That's what happened with the presidency in 2016. And so I think that it's, it's pretty, pretty apparent what we need to do. <laughs> Burn it down. <laughs> like every phase of my life, I've had a confrontation with something where I had to say to myself, like, no one agrees with me, but this doesn't feel right. And it would have been a lot, I don't know about easier, but it would have been more, I don't know, it would have been nice to have more support, to have anyone say, yeah, I see what you're saying. I feel that way too. And and what I've found from your page, what I see in the comments and, and what I see happening is that people like us are made to not feel so alone and made to feel like maybe their thoughts aren't totally crazy just because nobody agrees with them. You know, maybe... Maybe it's right to speak up, even if there is a risk involved, because I mean, I don't know about you, but I require a lot of external validation in my life. <laughs> so what happens when you grow up on a stage. So hearing my thoughts or hearing really any kind of support behind these very challenged opinions is, is a lot. It's very helpful. To see someone else speaking out about something, saying that they've had the same experience you had, but that you were told was like that you're being dramatic or crazy or you're like, this not a big deal or nobody's going to believe you. When you see someone else be heard and supported for that, it helps break through all that kind of brainwashing. This is not normal, actually. Like all these other people are saying that this is fucked up. You know what I mean? Like that's so you need that sometimes to recover from all that gaslighting. That part, I think that piece is really integral to healing, if not for like the circumstance itself being like being able to protect yourself in a difficult circumstance. But like if you aren't able to protect yourself, which unfortunately happens to a lot of us, having that support after the fact is 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 also very necessary. Somebody asked me, like, why do you think it's so particularly bad in the industry rape culture and um, just in general, I guess, you know, just the kind of yeah. uh, so the, this like social warfare. That was my answer was I think it's because it's so hard 
to survive. When you're in that survival mode, you're going to do things that you wouldn't normally do, right? Like you right. can justify things and wow. feel like I have to turn a blind eye to this. Uh, otherwise I'm not going to eat. I used to be really angry at everybody who enabled my abuser and, or just refused to believe me. You know, it's not like I fully gotten over it, but also now I have had enough distance to, and then I've seen this pattern emerge over and over and over again. And now have to the point where I realized like it's, it's kind of pointless to be mad at these individuals when it's, this is really the fault of the, the culture that they're in, the system that they're in. I still feel like they're spineless, but for anyone who's still trying to make it in the industry, it literally feels like life threatening to burn a bridge with pretty much anyone else that's in the industry, like anyone that you're right. going to see at festivals or anywhere, you know, it's like you have to, such a big part of it is the social climbing. All the people I see in bass music now, for the most part, who are successful, it's because they've been good at that. Yeah. You know, not, sometimes they actually come up on talent, but so many of them have come up just because they're good. They were really good at kissing ass and climbing the right ladder. AKA of the trees, AKA player Dave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right AKA oh, there's so right many. <laughs> I, but I think part of why you and I were able to like battle all those trolls and kind of um, take that on was because we had been we had ostracized already. We had nothing to lose. Some people are really indoctrinated. It's true. And some people are really spineless and some people are both, but like we were no less indoctrinated. You know what I mean? Like we were true still in the same atmosphere. And I, I know that we can be forgiving and compassionate, but to all the people that are still in the communities and wondering why this is happening, you have to do the work. Like if you see something, you have to say something or it won't fucking change. When I look back, when I first got into the industry at 19, I feel like I was so much just about like, I'm going to work and right. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of any situation that I'm in to make connections and get my jobs. But, but also I had to learn a lot of really hard lessons. I mean, I essentially ended up with a bunch of people that I thought were my closest friends, chosen family who then were faced with a situation where they had to have a backbone. They didn't, um, you know, but it's like, I can see how I didn't have the right values in the people I was seeking out, you know, like, right. because it was so focused on that. Uh, that's what our relationships were built on, not genuine love and connection, more just like more business money driven mentality. So then when they ha were faced with, you know, me versus space Jesus, they're not really thinking about me or uh, like the humanity of the situation yeah. or what's true. It's a business decision, which that, that was the most difficult part. Cause I really thought I, I, it's not like I was aware that I was doing that. You know, like I really thought all these people are my friends yeah. and I, I didn't think like, Oh, I'm just social climbing. I grew up in New York and that's so much the culture of New York. I mean, I think it, that's the like culture of America period, but it's like really, concentrated there, that whole mentality of hierarchy and social climbing, everything being so status oriented. So it was like uh, just kind of natural transition in a way into the music industry, getting into New into the music industry and in New York, that was the game to make the right connections and work with the right people, quote unquote. But now it's like, I am in my early thirties, having gone through this whole the yeah. devastating fallout being ostracized for being a victim and whistleblower. And it's just kind of sad, you know, that that's 
what I thought I had to do and that I ended up surrounded by a bunch of people who just weren't my real friends. That's kind of the, the, the thing that we come back to a lot because it felt like a huge loss at first like that. But then when I go back, I realized that like I was, I was next to the person that was in charge of the venue. So a lot of people were kissing my ass. They didn't have to, right. like, I didn't think of myself that way, but people were sucking up to me too. People were trying to be my friends. So as much as I thought that I had friends, when I look back, that's not what they were. I really thought my abuser and all these people around him, they're just monsters, like bad apples, essentially. And then uh, it was very heartbreaking, but also in a way opened my mind for, to realize it's not actually that all these individual people are monsters. It's that they're doing these monstrous things because of these larger systemic issues that pr yeah. normalize it and encourage it. We both have backgrounds in the music industry, but also as yoga teachers and in the new age yeah. scenes. Even though I was raised in a cult, I still managed to become a yoga teacher anyway. Uh, and <laughs> I say that because it's not, I don't blame yoga teachers entirely, but uh, the way that yoga has been commodified in the West is completely anti-yoga in general. Um, I found my way into yoga through like probably the gnarliest practice that there is, which is Bikram yoga. When I was 18, um, my sisters and I started going because we, we came from a family that didn't really show love or affection. So a yoga practice that was like really hard and militant and like kind of shamed us felt really comfortable. Uh, the yoga practice itself, regardless of all the evil that that dude committed, which he did for sure commit. Um, really helped me and my sisters to process through a lot of things, a lot of trauma. I found a sense of community. I eventually started teaching and very quickly realized that it was, well, I started teaching around the same time that I stopped drinking alcohol and simultaneously realized that teaching yoga is a fucking racket and kind of a pyramid scheme that you pay into. You buy clothes, you buy the training, and then you get 20 bucks a class to bring people to someone else's business with the training money that they earned from you. It's, it's a racket and it's unnecessary because in order to teach yoga, in order to be a yoga teacher, the kind of instruction that we all need is so different than what they're giving. It's not helping anybody. It's creating more diet culture. It's creating more body issues. It's creating actual damage in some people. For listeners who might not know, there's a lot of overlap between electronic dance music, you know, like a lot of cultural appropriation or white people with dreadlocks or um, Eastern symbols. Specifically, the culture that we've been a part of the most is bass music, West Coast bass music and transformational festivals. I came from a long, long time at Burning Man before I went anywhere else. Um, oh, like so Burning Man was your first festival? Well, I mean, they don't call it a festival. But it was your first. Yeah, it's my first festival. Uh, I went when I was, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's totally a festival. Don't let them tell you that. I mean, technically, they're right. Technically, it's not a festival. Technically, it's a small city for a week. So technically, it's the third largest city, I think, in the state of Nevada for one week. That was all self-made. Like, Burning Man was very, it, you had to take initiative to do things. There was never like a, here's a guide that's going to show you how to have a good time. If you ever got that at Burning Man, congratulations. I got a bunch of people being like, go figure it out. Go figure out what you want to do. You can do anything you want. And that was really uncomfortable and disquieting that I had to like really perceive myself in order to create my experience. And then I went to Lightning in a Bottle about 10 years later. And I just remember walking around being like, this is so boring. 
No one would even look up at you. No one even paid attention to each other. Everybody was just going to the next stage. Everybody was just going to their camp. Like there was nothing in between. You were either getting food, taking a shower, taking a shit, going to a show. And it was all spectator. And Burning Man is famous for not being a spectator's festival. And and places like all other festivals literally don't do that. Yeah. Wild that you, your first experience was Burning Man, because most people, it's the opposite, where Burning Man yeah. is kind of the mecca that they'll eventually make it to. Like, they'll start out at smaller festivals and then get deep into festival culture and be like, I have to get to Burning Man. That's like the mother, the, the motherland. Burning Man's, 90, <laughs> Burning Man's 90 minutes away from my house. So it was the easiest one to get to. I didn't know that. My first time I went to Burning Man, my friends picked me up last minute. We bought a ticket for me at the gate because back then you could do that for $350. I thought we were going towards Vegas. I did. I got in the car. I was 18. I didn't fucking know anything. I was like, well, this is going to be a long drive. And they were like, no, we're just going behind Pyramid Lake a little ways. And I remember showing up and looking wow. and being like, that's not real. Because no matter what anyone tells you about Burning Man, nothing will prepare you for the sheer fucking size. Nothing. Nothing will prepare you for that. I remember looking over and they were like, there it is. And I was like, that's not, that's not what we're doing. That's like a whole city. That's not a thing that we're going to. And it was, and it was so uncomfortable. And I was so freaked out by so somebody gave me a gift right away. And I was like, I don't have anything for you. I'm sorry. Like, I didn't know how anything it's completely alternative to what you're used to. And it's nothing like any of the other festivals people go to. What's different for me is I'm coming from the love and light. I'm coming from the anti-vax and I watched that be an abusive childhood. So I'm actually just veering all the way away from all the counterculture mechanisms, I think in my adult life. That makes so much sense. Like the fact that we, that the new age culture uses white power and abuse with a veil of indigenous decoration is just, I think one of the greatest curses that white folks have brought themselves recently. Cause I think that colonizers have just been continuously trying to create curses for themselves and the planet since we came over here. If you think you need one of these idiots help, one of these power hungry social climbers help, then just realize that you don't, you don't need it.